Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. My name is Dave, and it is my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Harvest, and it's my greater privilege this morning to bring the Word of God to you. We have been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John, and this morning we've come to John chapter 6, verses 26 to 29, and it's, a, it's the introduction to a section of Scripture in which Jesus makes a really important statement about who he is. Now, you're going to hear a lot of things said to you over the course of your life very passionately. The people who will say these things to you will make it sound like this is the make-or-break truth, that thing that decides whether you know the truth or you're asleep. This is one of those truths. If you don't know who Jesus is, you've missed out on the entire point of what this is. There are some wonderful, horizontal, social, relational reasons for us to be together. And I don't minimize those at all. I think, in fact, the horizontal relationships we enjoy in the church have saved some people's lives. And I mean that literally. I think these horizontal relationships have resulted in saving marriages, in bringing people back to physical health. But I also know that the most important relationship that marks our church is the relationship we each have with Jesus. And every time I preach from the Gospel of John during this series, what I'm really hoping God will say to you personally is, does that describe what you have with him? I know you may have grown up in the church, maybe not this church, but in the church, but the most important thing is to think about who Jesus actually is to you personally. I want to look at John 26, verses 26 to 29. Here's what it says. And I might need some help here, guys, because this thing is not, it's not obeying me. I'm not sure what's going on here. If you want to uh, just advance the slides for me, thank you. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, You are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. I want you to think back, use your imagination, think back to the last time you were super hungry. I mean, so hungry you saw a spider walk across your floor and like, I wonder how spiders taste, like that kind of hungry. And do you remember what that felt like to be so hungry? Like, I'll eat anything. You're rummaging around in the glove compartment of your car, and you find an old fortune cookie from Panda Express from six years ago, and you're like, let's give it a try. 
that kind of hungry. And then you sat down at a table and you had some food in front of you. Do you remember what it felt like to eat when you were really hungry? There are times when I don't even chew. You know, when we say we inhaled our food, I know what that feels like. There are times when I'm just shoveling it. I'm until I swallow and nothing happens. The food is just right there. And I sit back contented, and there's, there's nothing else in the world quite like the feeling of being really hungry and then suddenly being really full. It's a, it's a kind of special sensation. I don't enjoy it as much now in my older years as I did when I was a younger man, but that's still one of those matchless feelings, right? But no matter how good, no matter how filling one particular meal might be, and I would love to just do a poll, but I'm not going to, but what's the most you've ever spent on one meal? You know, I, that could be a shocking question to ask the church, but <clears throat> no matter how good, how filling a meal may have been, here's one thing you can count on for sure. Give yourself a few hours, and that strange, nagging hunger is going to start coming back. I'm always amazed by this because when I eat in that real state of hunger and I just gorge on food, and you know, I've had those moments where I'm just shoveling it in, shoveling it in, and then I say, oh man, I couldn't eat another bite. Well, it, this, I almost always say this after I visit Taco Bell, I never want to come here again. <laughs> like, I just, I overdid it, I was very irresponsible, I made some bad food choices, I'm just like here, and I say things like, like I, if I never see food again, I'll be okay. And though I've said those words with my own mouth, three hours later, I'm like, oh, and I'm standing in front of the refrigerator just like this. Why am I there? Because some weird sensation is revisiting me. And here's the thing I noticed. Several times a day, I experience this familiar cycle of hunger or need followed by filling. It's just over and over every day. It's a part of living on earth for most of us. And because we live in a well-resourced culture, uh, society, when we have a need, the longest we ever really need to endure hunger or thirst for most of us is maybe an hour or two, right? Most of us, it's not like, oh, I was hungry for like 16 days. It was more like I had to wait 15 minutes for them to get my food. I was dying. That's just how it is. We hunger, we thirst, and then we're satisfied. And this happens, in the case of thirst especially, maybe dozens of times in a single day. In fact, Jesus not only made this observation about food, but he made it about water. When he was talking with that woman from from Samaria at the well, when you see me do this, just flip the slide because this thing just ain't working. I don't know if the dongle's in on that end, but it's just not working. So... um, in John 4, 4, 13 to 14a, here's what he says. He's talking to this Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, everyone who drinks this water, meaning this physical water from a physical well, will be thirsty again. That's just the nature of need. You drink, you're satisfied, but that need is going to come right back. You can set your clock by it. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst And I don't know what you think that means, but statements like that should make you at least mildly curious if you're awake. What do you mean you can offer a water which makes my thirst permanently go away? What could that possibly mean? See, I think several times a day, 
God has built it into our physical bodies to experience an unignorable need. Whether it's thirst or hunger, you can't just ignore it. It's a reminder that life is not just a given. We don't live because we will ourselves to live. You can't say, forget food, it's a hassle. Forget water, it's such a hassle. I'm just going to stay alive by sheer willpower and mental energy. Try that for a week. Try. I mean, some of you guys who, who think you have really strong mental powers, try this week just keeping yourself alive because you've decided, doggone it, I'm going to I'm going to live. Your body won't let you be that dumb. It'll tell you, no, no, life isn't just a given. Life every day reminds us we are dependent creatures. Life doesn't just happen. It must be fueled, nourished, provided for, or death happens. Life isn't something you just set it and forget it. Every day an intervention is needed to create life, to stave off death. And one day, no matter what you do, you won't be able to put it off any longer. Death will come for all of us. But the truth is, life requires something to maintain. It doesn't just happen. And that physical repetition every day is supposed to point us to something else. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, every time John records a miracle of Jesus, he calls it something a little different than He says it's a sign. It's not just a demonstration or a miracle or a holy cow moment. He always refers to it as a sign. And what he means by that is this thing which has raised the hairs on the back of your neck, which has made you look at each other and go, how did that happen? What just happened? That thing is supposed to point you to another deeper truth. It's supposed to tell you that this, this person who has just performed this miracle in front of you is trying to tell you something else is also going on here. Something more important than food or water. I don't know how you feel about this. Some of you might leave the church after hearing this, but I have this secret guilty pleasure. I watch The Living Dead. I don't mean like literally, I mean I watch the show, The Living Dead. Sometimes I wonder if I'm watching The Living Dead, but the show The Living Dead is a zombie show. But only on the outermost skin of the show is it a zombie show. The zombies are really just a prop. It's really a show about the human condition. And I'm not saying that to justify my choice to watch it. I am fascinated by the way this show strips away the veneer of civilization and reveals to us what we really are. When you take away all the scaffolding, all the protection, all the armor that we think makes us civilized, and you just make us mammals again. Where survival is not a given, but every day if you don't fight, and if you're not smart, if you're not vigilant, you're going to die. And when you take that away from us, and reduce us to mammals foraging about in the forest for food, you realize what we really are, what life is like, what we are really like. And what amazes me is they're living in a post-apocalyptic world full of zombies. So there's a threat from the dead, and there's a threat from the living. Their fellow survivors are not all nice people. You realize even after the apocalypse, the end of the world, the biggest problem we still have is each other. Why do you got to do that? Why do you got to act like that? Why can't you just leave each other alone? Why do you have to take what's mine just because you're stronger? And we ask each other these questions. And what I realize is even in the midst of this horrible world, the one theme you see running throughout every season is on top of all that stress, every day, urgently, without being ignored, is the need to gather food. 
That's how important hunger is as a fixture, a pointer, a sign to something important, is that every day in the midst of all this other stress, the one thing they're constantly looking after is we need to make sure we gather food. Because even if we get everyone to stop fighting, if they start starving, we'll all die anyway. You see how important, how much of a priority it is to keep eating to stay alive. Now, that's a little removed for us because we live in the world of Costco's. And we have cold, filtered water coming out of a spout in the door of our refrigerator. We live in the future. There are people alive on this planet today who would see that and go, that is a miracle from another planet. Everything comes easily. It's all available. Our biggest issue is how it tastes, not whether we will eat or not, right? Do you and your family after church sit in the car and go, children, let's pray, how are we going to get some food? No, you sit in the car paralyzed for an hour because you can't decide which restaurant, which flavor you're going to put in your mouth. I don't want that taste. Well, I don't want that taste. Well, why don't we all go to separate places? And, you know, that's our biggest stress is what will we eat? Not will we eat, but what will we eat? So for us, it's hard to think about how important the gathering of food is and why that is a very important sign to something else. But when these people in the previous account, the feeding of the 5,000, saw Jesus conjure up food for a large crowd out of thin air, they paid attention. It's no wonder they paid attention because for them, they lived in a world without Costco's and refrigerators that shot out water. They lived in a world where where hunger was no stranger to them, where you legitimately could wonder, are we going to be all right next year if the fields don't produce crops? If the king changes the laws, it makes it hard for us to earn a living here. And so when they saw Jesus feed a crowd of around fifteen or 20,000 people with a little boy's lunch, they said, this is a guy who is useful to us, powerful. If we latch onto him, he will take us places. And I think that's the way leadership has almost always worked in societies. We don't necessarily love our leaders. We just latch on to the ones who could take us collectively where we would like to go. And so they see this guy and they say, maybe if he can make food out of thin air, he's got the kind of power that could also produce liberty, independence, national glory. Maybe he could restore our country and make Israel great again. And that's what they wanted. They were tired of being humiliated. They were tired of being oppressed by the strong hand of Rome. They remembered the days of King David and Solomon and the stories their ancestors passed down to them of when Israel ruled the world, when it was the mightiest nation, favored of God, and they wanted that back. They would have done literally anything to achieve that again. And here's a man making food out of thin air, and they're like, uh, maybe this is our guy. And so they latch on to him, and it says in John 6, 15, that they actually try to make him their king by force. No election, like, you're going to be our king, shut up, don't, don't argue. You have to be our king, because if you rule over us with that kind of power, you might take us to the places we all want to go. Look at what Jesus says in verse 26. For anybody who's got ambitions to be a, a figure, a leader or a celebrity, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Oh, oh, you want me to be your leader? 
Thank you. You know what? I don't like to be the center of attention, but sure, I'll do it. And, and that's when you get on the train and you ride it all the way to glory. Instead of saying thank you for believing in me, for supporting me, Jesus rebukes this crowd. And he says to them, you crossed literally from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You walked on foot all the way around the coast to find me on the west coast because you saw me feed the crowds and you wanted more from me. But your seeking after me is not for the right thing. And here's the thing. It's possible to want more of God, but not for the reasons God wants to be wanted. It's possible to see that God meets my needs, but come very short of the fullness of what God meant when he says, I will meet your needs. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's possible to look like you are after God and still be wrong in why you're after God. And that's not to say you get an F on the church test. It's saying, if that's where you are, you're missing out on the best part of everything. It's like you're laughing at the wrong part of the joke, and there's a much funnier aspect to this joke if you'll listen. And what he said is, you're chasing after me because you ate and you were full and you thought this man could give us the things we need right now, right here. He says, I do care. That miracle was meant for Jesus to demonstrate to the watching world that God does care about the things that affect us down here. He doesn't look at human hunger and just go, that's not my problem. Let them forage and find food for themselves. He does care about hunger. He cares about justice. He cares about well-being, dignity, identity, security. He cares about freedom. He cares about people having enough clean water to drink and wash their bodies. All those things burden the heart of God, but they are not the thing which burdens the heart of God the most. And I cannot impress this upon you enough. Because God doesn't care about something the most doesn't mean he doesn't care. He cares immensely. He cares about those secondary things more than we ever will. Do you get that? If you think you care about justice, you, you got nothing on God. He invented justice. If you think you care about the dignity of your fellow human being, you have no idea who invented dignity. He cares about all those things more than we will ever dream to care about them. But... There's something that this God who cares so deeply cares about even more than all those things. In other words, he's saying, you think that I am somehow, like, I guess this is what, if Jesus were a stand-up comic today or host of a late-night talk show, he'd say, no, you all are trying to reduce me to a provider of groceries. I am the living God in flesh. I have come to offer you something unbelievable. And you're trying to reduce me to something so much less. I, I, I didn't know um, how else to picture it, but imagine you found Thor's hammer. What's it called? Mjolnir? I can never pronounce it. Is that Zoe? Is that right? She's my resident Marvel Cinematic Universe expert. So let's say you found Thor's hammer in a field one day, and you brought it home. What would you do with it? It would be like finding Thor's hammer, putting it on a shelf in your garage, and using it every once in a while to drive nails. That's how stupid it would be. Sure, you can use Thor's hammer to drive nails, but boy, are you getting way... I'm I'm assuming you could actually lift it, right? I 
I know, the, the comic book nerds are just losing it right now. But let's say you were righteous enough to lift the hammer. Do you realize what a gross undervaluation of that hammer it would be to just use it? Go to Home Depot, buy a $10 sledgehammer. Use that instead. But to use this just as a blunt instrument would be to miss the total point of what that is. And what Jesus is saying is, you see that I care about your bellies. You see that I care about the way your heart feels, what you see when you look in the mirror. I care about all those things, but if you think that's where my care for you ends, you've missed the greatest thing that I've come to fix. When you hear the word materialism, what do you think about? Maybe you associate that word with greed for money or a slavish addiction or dependence on luxury or nice things. Maybe that's what, so you might say things, you know, not, not to the person themselves, but maybe to your friend. A person is kind of materialistic, don't you think? So maybe when you hear the word materialistic, you equate it with greed or superficiality, shallowness, someone who's just blinged out all the time and has to wear their full wealth on their neck and on their wrist. But really, materialism is a philosophy. It's a worldview. And what materialism is primarily has very little to do with money. It has to do with material. It has to do with this idea that what is most real, and you can flash that slide back, what is most real is the stuff that's here, that we could touch. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. And without a single pointing finger of accusation, I want you to just pause and think about whether that secular definition of materialism describes you in any way. Because I'll be honest, I had to really think about that because I've said things in my own, not to other people, okay? Some of these things are private until I preach and then I make it public. I've said things to myself this year like self Thank God he didn't call me to one of those remote places or to be a pastor in a church of five people in a small town with one stoplight. I think I would go so stir-crazy and claustrophobic, I would go nuts. Thank God he put me in a suburb outside a big city with diverse people. I think that, and so I've said to myself, I don't know how joyfully I could say yes to God if. And so, you know, I realized that I think about my own comfort Not just physical comfort, but even the comfort in this moment, in my earthly situation, and how important that really is to me, how much that limits what I'm willing to hear from God. I think it's important for us to recognize and identify in our hearts when there's materialism, because if materialism has defined your heart, then the greatest rewards you will get out of this world are merely material rewards. And thousands and thousands of years of human history have proven to us that if all you live for is materials, you will end up with nothing, literally. This whole earthly experience will be for nothing when it's all finished and done. Jesus said, you come to me because you want your bellies full, and you have no idea what else I'm really trying to give you. And if you value me because I care about your hunger, you're right. But if you think that's all I care about, or worse, if that's all you care about, you're going to miss out on the best parts. 
I think it's easy for us to become like the crowds. I think it's very easy for us to say, God, the only time I come to you is when something down here in the real world is a mess and I need you. And maybe that phrase, real, that word, best describes what materialism is. Materialism might be described as when the only things that are real are stuff here in the physical world now. You know how you can tell if there's some materialism creeping around in your heart? Is when you say, you know, I'm upset about this issue, and someone goes, well, let's pray together. And you're like, I don't want prayer. I want you to pick up a sign, dang it. I want you to act. And I'm not suggesting that a good Christian never acts. Action is needed. You'll know you're materialistic, not if if you care about things in the material world, but if you only care about them to the devaluing of the spiritual things that have real power as well. I think it's Christian of us. It's godly to act in righteous indignation when we see injustice, brokenness, poverty, violence. It's right for us to stand up and act. God is the one who put that impulse in us. But if that's where the real world ends for you, it's the way people feel, the way they experience life, what they eat, what they drink, how they live. If that's the only things that are real, and prayer sounds like a weak consolation prize for people who don't want to live in this real world, that is the kind of materialism that will rob you of the greatest blessings God has to offer. The Bible clearly says in the book of James, you're not supposed to say to someone who's cold and starving, oh, God bless you, be well, I'll pray for you, and not do anything to feed them. James clearly says that's messed up and that's not God at all. But it's also totally messed up to go, well, I fed him. I'm not going to pray for him. What good is prayer when people need food? That is the kind of materialism that robs us of the greatest gifts of God. Because I want you to imagine with me that if God said nothing but yes for one solid year to every human need presented to him, God, there are all these people marginalized in our society. They have no dignity, no place, no standing. They don't know who they are. They're confused and hurt. Give them some dignity. Give them some standing. And God says, okay. There's all these people who can't find water to drink or wash. They don't have enough food. They're living in war zones. Help them. Yes. If God said yes to every human need we ever presented, would that make earth a paradise? If you think yes, you have no idea what the definition of paradise is. Because even if he said yes to every need we present, we're still left with a fundamental brokenness or problem in this earth that all the yeses from God for those things won't address. And we know that's true. Many people have proven it in their own experience. See, Jesus went on to say, you're chasing after me because you want more bread. But look what he says in verse six, chapter 6, verse 35. He says, I'm not the bringer of bread. I am the bread. If I just brought you bread, I'd have to be your bread guy for the rest of your life. And one day you'll be too weak, too sick, too old to chew that bread, and you'll exit the earth. And what good will all that bread have been? Bread is essential to living on this earth, but it's not the only life I care about. And what Jesus says is, I am not the one who brings bread. I am bread. And when you come to me and you take what I am offering you, that, that's the difference between staying alive and being truly alive. See, there is a creaturely need to live. 
This mammalian body of mine needs fuel to live. But there's another kind of life I need. That apart from Jesus, I and every other person on earth is in a state of spiritual death. And the life Jesus came to truly deliver to us is not one meal after another until one day I die. It is to take dead people and make them alive, spiritually. He's saying that the satisfaction he brings isn't temporary. It doesn't have to be re-administered over and over like food or water. Take a look at John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51. It's kind of small. I don't know if you can read that. But here's the declaration of Jesus. I am the bread of life, he says. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. It's one of the true statements of the world. You eat, you eat, you eat, and one day you'll die. I know if you're young, that's really depressing to think about. I don't know if it's just that I'm, I turned 51 a couple days ago, but... I think a lot about the fact that I don't have that much longer left down here. It's coming for me. I'm going to go home. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give. For what? For the life of the world. Not the temporary, limited, finite existence here, but that deadness of the soul, of the spirit. He will make that come to life. Maybe you can't identify with that or understand what I mean when I say spiritually dead. Here's here's how I think spiritual deadness often manifests itself. If you're wondering, am I spiritually alive or spiritually dead? None of these things by themselves are an absolute indicator, but they help us start to explore our own condition. Do you find that you rarely or never experience real and lasting peace in your heart? Like there's always a restlessness, a fear, a tension every moment, every day you're alive. Like I, I don't know what that word peace means. I always feel frenzied. Rushed, uncertain, scared. That's another one. Is there a fear that has controlled you or paralyzed you? Now, it's not to say that the thing you're afraid of isn't scary, but you have not yet found the means by which to move forward in the midst of that fear. This fear has gripped you completely. It has robbed you of so many things. Do you know, I was like that from birth till seventh grade. So much opportunity lost because I was so shy and withdrawn. Can you imagine? I stand in front of people and talk every week for a living. This would have been my worst nightmare as a kid. And then I met this guy in in high school who completely changed my story. He taught me how to come out of my shell. And life changed for me. But I remember feeling like Always this fear. Things could go wrong. People might laugh. And so I wouldn't try anything. I wanted to play Little League Baseball, but I was like, I'm going to be bad at it. And then all those guys will laugh at me. So I never went out. I loved football. I was good at football. I wanted to go out for the freshman football team. But then I saw how big these guys were. I'm like, I'm going to literally get killed. 
So I didn't try out. Then I saw how small some of those guys were wearing jerseys the first day of school. I'm like, stupid Dave. I should have tried. I'm bigger than half those guys. Why didn't I try out? Maybe you find that in your heart you don't know what to do when someone wrongs you. There's no way, there's no capacity in you to overlook an offense. When someone does something wrong, you have the memory of a computer. I don't even know why we talk about elephants. We have no idea what elephants remember. But computers never forget, right? And maybe when someone wrongs you, it blows your circuits. I don't know what to do with this. They clearly did wrong to me. And I need to do something. And Jesus goes, how about you forgive them? I don't know how. I can't. I hear you. I think that probably that's the right answer. But maybe all your life, you've never found the capacity to overlook an offense or really forgive someone. Let them go. Maybe there's just an absence of zeal in your life. You know, the taste for living, a desire to be alive. You know, some people, everywhere they go, they're just like, Hi, I'm here, whatever. You know that feeling of apathy, of numbness, of sort of whatever? Is that mark, does that mark your whole being? There's just no zeal for living. No sparking that says, I want more. I want to fully be alive while I'm here. Maybe there's just a deep emptiness, no matter how many experiences you have. How many pleasures you experience, how many victories you win still remains somewhere deep down in emptiness. And all of those things which I'm trying to help you relate to rise out of one central deadness, which is you do not truly have the capacity yet to know or to love God rightly. That's where all of this spiritual deadness comes from. And so no matter how many other ways you try to deal with that feeling of deadness deep down inside... All your efforts, and here's the interesting thing. In the world, the way it works is the more you feed that desire to feel alive, the more it takes to feel anything at all. Do you know that I like heights? I'm one of those weird people who, when I see heights, I get super excited. And I've done some crazy stuff with heights. Like, I went to the CN Tower. I dangled over the edge from the tallest structure in North America, hanging literally by a rope. And I was like, this is exciting. But after five minutes, I'm like, this is boring. And I keep wanting more and more and more. And what I realize now is I've done, I've sought every high place I could find that I could dangle from or look down from. And it's taking more and more to make me feel anything at all. It used to be I look over there and go, oh. Now I just go, eh. Is there something higher in this continent? And that's the nature of this world. If you try to feed your spiritual deadness with earthly food, it takes more and more, and it produces less and less response from within you. Because the kind of deadness which Jesus is making alive is not on the surface of us. It is at the heart of us. It comes from knowing, responding to, loving God rightly, and knowing who we are in him. I think... Comedian Jim Carrey, in a reflective moment, maybe said it most poignantly. He said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that's not the answer. I was blown away by the guy who said it. You know? But he was really getting honest in this one talk, and he said, I have chased down and caught every rabbit that I wanted to pursue. And I still feel 
like it's not enough. It's not what I needed. Though he is not a Christian and though he was not thinking in in terms of the biblical deadness or aliveness, I think he's describing what Jesus is describing. That there is a deadness in us that all the worldly things cannot make come alive. The deadness that he wants to bring back to life is in the spirit and the soul. That is the primary gift which Jesus came to bring. And if you miss that gift, all the other gifts don't matter. You will still end up in that same place. And that's not to say he undervalues or doesn't care about those things, but he is obsessively after your soul. What he wants more than anything with you is to see your soul, your spirit come alive for you to know and love him rightly and to be truly alive in a life that's really life. If the only thing that makes you feel alive is pleasure and you don't know what joy really is, Jesus wants you to know. Maybe there's a barrier, and I'll I'll kind of wind down with this. Maybe right now, as you're sitting here listening to this, you're in a bit of a, a fight with God. Some of you might even be on the verge of breaking up with God. There is in your heart a daily battle to say, will, I, will this finally be the day when I give up on him? Because I think he's given up on me. Will this be the day I look at my heavenly father and say, I'm turning my back on you because I believe you have turned your back on me. Maybe the barrier between you and God is because there is a need in this world, legitimate, important, valid, and you've cried out to him for a long time and he has chosen for whatever reason not to give you what you've asked for. And in that, you felt this deep disappointment, rejection, abandonment, confusion. Why wouldn't God give me this thing which is so important to me And because of that disappointment, you're at a place now where you're wondering, has God actually quit on me because I'm feeling like I might quit on God? I don't want to rebuke you or chastise you. If I were in that place, I would feel all of those same feelings. But there is something which Jesus wants to offer you that is better than him saying yes to those things which you've asked for. And if you get that, You can endure a lifetime of disappointments. But if you don't have it, you won't feel alive even if you have a lifetime of pleasures and victories. The day Jeannie and I got married, just a little over 23 years ago, it was, I would say, on a human scale, one of the worst weddings I've ever been to. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Honey, you know what I mean, right? You know... Everything that could go wrong went wrong. We wanted outdoor pictures. We had like seven groomsmen, seven bridesmaids. It's going to be a really cool outdoor picture. And it pours rain literally in the last five minutes of the ceremony. Photographers like, we can't take outdoor pictures. It'll ruin everyone's clothes. So we couldn't take outdoor pictures. Hearts were set on it. The florist got into a car accident on the way to the church. Came really late. And they were still rushing around, setting up flowers while the pastor was walking up. Like, this is a mess. Our photographer was acting really weird. We suspect he was drunk. Do you remember how weird he was acting? I think that dude, maybe, maybe one of his lenses was actually a canteen. I don't know, but he was not right. And if you look at some of the pictures, the reception hall, we had bought a $100 Precious Moments figurine to top our cake because Jeannie loves Precious Moments. It was going to be our keepsake. 
on the mantle of our fireplace for the rest of our lives. The reception hall lost it. Someone just threw it in the garbage. Along with our engraved champagne glasses for the toast and our engraved cake cutting knife and the top of the cake that you're supposed to save for the first year. We're like, where's all that? And they're like, oh, sorry, I think someone threw it out. <laughs> Shall I go on? But you know what one thing went exceedingly right? Is that the love of my life stood in front of me and pledged her heart to me for the rest of her life. And we, we bound that in covenant oath with the authority, the name, the love of Jesus Christ. And that bond has held true for 23 years, and we love each other more today than we did on that day. And at one level, that it was a day filled with unimaginable disappointments. And for some people, Bridezilla, I'm looking at you. That's the kind of thing that will undo the whole day. Because that's all that some people can see. It all has to go just right. But what Jesus is saying is, even if you're hungry, even if you have to endure indignity for many years, even if the things you yearn for don't go right, if this one most important thing goes exceedingly right, everything else can be endured. But you take away that one thing and none of the rest of it matters. Do you know how many celebrities have $8 million extravaganza weddings to divorce six weeks later? What matters most? What is that thing which is of central importance, which if you miss it, none of the rest of the successes and victories matter at all? And what is that thing which if you get it, all the disappointments, all the setbacks in life can be endured because this one thing is true. I look back on my wedding day, and I think it was one of the best days of my life. If I were the event planner or the wedding coordinator, it would be the day I quit event planning and wedding coordinator. But as a groom, it was one of the best days of my life. Still is. And I wonder when you hear the name of Jesus spoken, what rings in you? Jesus says, in verse 27, guys, I know you're hungry. You have so many needs here, but don't obsess over food that spoils. All that will come. I promise you. I care about those things. You will have the things you need in time. But don't get sidetracked obsessing over lesser things. I have come to offer you food which never spoils and a life that's truly life. The most important thing you can have with Jesus is Jesus himself. And if you've come consistently to God to get things from him, come get the most important thing which he's offering for you. If you're hearing me say these words this morning and something in your heart says, that's me, I need to respond to this, I'm going to ask you to do that. In the quietness of your heart as we now bow to pray together. If you're spiritually dead, all the pleasures in the world will not make you come alive. But if you're spiritually alive, all the setbacks and losses in this world cannot take away your sense of joy and peace. Every one of us will finish this life with different balances in our bank accounts, with different scars, different stories, 
But not every one of us will finish this life in the same place with respect to Jesus. And for all the diversity of our earthly experience, the one most important thing we can have in common here is that we actually understood what Jesus was offering us, who he is. We stopped coming to him to get stuff we wanted and came to him to realize he's offering himself so that we who are dead can become alive. So that when these earthly days are done, we can look at that fog beyond the veil of death and say, I'm ready to go. I'm going to go home now. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.